Welcome to Waterbrook Church, located in Victoria, Minnesota. Our new series in Luke called Glorious Disruption, being taught by our senior pastor, Kevin Dibley, is about when Jesus shows up and turns everyone's world upside down. We believe this study of God's word is about to turn many people's lives completely around. It may be even upside down because that's what happens in the Gospel of Luke. Jesus comes to people who are absolutely stunned and amazed by him, and they are profoundly and gloriously changed forever. Let's begin by praying that this happens here at Waterbrook and beyond for our joy and amazement in Jesus. Let's worship together. Well, I want to again greet all of you uh, today and for those of you who are visiting Waterbrook, I got to meet some of you. We're glad that you are worshiping with us this morning. I just want to pause and um, kind of restate this to all of you. I I think um, it's really important that all of you know God sees you. And if you go away from worship hearing anything today, I want you to hear that. Uh, Even as um, we were reading that passage of Scripture, and as Johnny was praying both in French and English, uh, you are meant to hear that passage in Luke 12. It's a very strong passage of Scripture with real warnings, but you you need to hear Jesus like a mother bear over her cubs. That as the crowds begin to gather by the thousands, Jesus knows at the end of chapter 11 that the religious leaders are plotting to end his ministry they don't care that Jesus is healing the sick. They don't care that Jesus is forgiving the guilty. They don't care that Jesus is making the lame to walk. They don't care. And Jesus is filled with holy anger because he is filled with holy love. I just want to pause and ask you to hear that today. If you don't hear me say anything else, he knows your story. He feels deeply your greatest needs. So some of you have traveled from South Carolina. God knows you. He sees you. You matter. I want to welcome you. Some of you are about to be deployed right after you do a service to honor the life of your mom. You matter. That matters. It's not a minimal thing. Some of you are battling health issues. We're going to battle with you. But thank God at the right hand, Jesus is battling on your behalf, right? And so when Jesus speaks with really clear language here, he is speaking because he cannot tolerate hypocritical, self-righteous, professing religionists who, in order to hold on to power, miss out on the broken and the wounded and the weary and the lame. He will not tolerate it. And uh, as I head off with Marianne to England, I want to say to Waterbrook, we're going to make our, our, our confessional statement together as covenant partners. I want to say to our church family, 
we need to fight that Waterbrook would be the kind of church that Jesus Christ died to make her. That broken, weary, tired, confused, disillusioned people might find a place to be healed and reconciled and restored. And so we, we read a text like Luke chapter 12, and we don't breeze over it. We say this section is written to keep us from being a bunch of hypocritical harm doers in the name of God. It's easy to do that. Yesterday I listened a little bit again to uh, Christianity Today's podcast on the rise and fall of Mars Hill. And in the podcast, the latest uh, podcast, they were talking about trauma and the Christian. Isn't it a heartbreaking reality that the history of the church is that there is trauma attached to Christian ministry and mission? Now, the, the warning that we get from this passage of Scripture is Jesus stopping. It's really clear. It says he spoke to his disciples first. That's important. Also, partway through, he says to them, my friends. And as Jesus first talks to his disciples and speaks to his friends, he wants to argue that we would be as disciples, the opposite of the hypocrites, the Pharisees, who are coming after Jesus without regard to the consequences for the masses. Thousands of people are now coming. And I can just imagine thousands of people mean Tens of thousands of problems. And there is no room for religion and pride in hypocrisy. And so in a few minutes when we read our church covenant together, it's easy for us to read it like it's a document designed for insiders. And I've got to be careful about that. It's a covenant we make with each other as a local church but the reason we do it is that we might be the church that Christ died to maker in the world around us to pray for one another to live out the gospel together and so this passage of scripture is crucial because what it does is it sets the culture up for the Christian church, the culture that needs to be formed. We can say confessional things, but friends, we culturally, we need to be a people that reflect Jesus Christ and the gospel. And so this is what I, I uh, let, me, let me read to you one of our prayers. I'm just going to read briefly for Waterbrook. And if, if you want to know how to pray for us as Waterbrook, this is how to pray for us as a church. Our prayer for Waterbrook is that we would be a people prayerfully equipped and passionately engaged with the hope of the gospel in order to be a true refuge, I put in brackets here, a safe community for broken, sinful people to be rescued, healed, restored, and then engaged in the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. Do you agree with that? Don't you want Waterbrook to be a place where people can be rescued, reconciled, restored, and then to go into a world and say there is a Savior who knows and loves and forgives? 
So Jesus in this text is giving the framework for how his disciples are to live out his ministry. And I just want to point out a couple of things in this text that you and I need to understand. Here's, here's the first thing I'm asking Waterbrook to be and Waterbrook to do culturally as a community, as we carry out our ministries and we, as we live out our mission. The first thing is we have to fight hypocrisy with all our might. We have to fight hypocrisy with all our might. And I say that for this reason. We are all hypocrites. We have to fight against Phariseeism, which is the idea to present that we are better than we are so that we can feel better than we do without Jesus, right? And so listen to how Jesus speaks here. Jesus says, it says in Luke's gospel, in, in verse, at the end of verse 1, Jesus said to his disciples first, Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Nothing is covered up that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be made known. Therefore, whatever you have said in the dark shall be heard in the light, and what you have whispered in private rooms shall be proclaimed on the housetops. Jesus pauses and he, he looks at his disciples who know that the Pharisees want him dead and want to destroy his mission. He looks at his disciples and he says, I need to tell you, watch out for the leaven of hypocrisy. Why does he call it the leaven of hypocrisy? What does leaven do? It spreads and invades the whole loaf. So if you've ever made bread and you've put it on the counter, or you've made dough and put it on the counter, and you put uh, enough leaven in it, you come back in the morning and it swallowed your food processor and your microwave, and you know it, it grows, it spreads, it invades everything. That's what religious hypocrisy does, it spreads. It can infect a person's life, it expands, it can infect a church family, where suddenly we have this message that we're the super church, we're the righteous ones, we're the ones who got it together. Let me tell you something, no way, Jose. We have to acknowledge that the biggest battle for all of us will continue to be the acknowledgement before people around that if Jesus didn't meet me this morning, I'm in deep trouble. That's what John said at the beginning. I get up in the morning and the rush of sin and temptation and discouragement comes upon me, but my hope is in Jesus Christ alone. And here's, here's what Jesus is teaching his disciples. You don't become a hypocrite intentionally. You become a hypocrite accidentally. You slowly begin to allow the lie of your own self-righteousness to invade your life. And Gabe gave me a, a book this week um, called Accidental Pharisees by Larry Osborne, who's pastored for a long time down in California. And I, wanna, I want you to read what, or hear what Larry Osborne writes, and then I want you to think about your own heart. Not, don't be thinking about anybody else. Don't be thinking about any, anybody else. Just think about yourself. Larry Osborne writes, No one starts out with the desire to become a Pharisee. You know, they're the bad guys. We all know that. In the same way, no one looks in the mirror and sees a Pharisee. I've never heard anyone describe himself as a Pharisee. I bet you haven't either. The word always describes someone else, but the truth is that accidental Pharisees are made up of people like you and me, people who love God, love the scriptures, and are trying best to live by them. 
The thing to note about accidental Pharisees is that they're accidental. They're like dinner at Denny's. No one plans to go there. You just end up there. Now, I, I, I laugh at that because in Honduras, Denny's is a classy restaurant. So if my kids are watching, just it's a cultural thing you won't understand. <laughs> But he adds in this, I want you to listen to this. He, he says, you step out in faith. This is how you become an accidental Pharisee. You step out in faith. You make some big changes. You clean up areas of sin and compromise. You add new spiritual disciplines as you excitedly race off to the front of following Jesus' line. But as you press forward, it's inevitable that you begin to notice other people lag behind. It's at this point your personal pursuit of holiness can morph into something dangerous. A deepening sense of frustration with those who don't share your passion for holiness. This is a critical juncture. If you allow your frustration to turn into disgust or disdain for the people that you've left behind, you'll end up on a dangerous detour. Instead of becoming more like Jesus, you become more like his arch enemies, the Pharisees. Looking down on others, confident in your own righteousness, and that, of course, is a terrible place to be. So what, what Larry Osborne is saying is this what happens to us. I get convicted I need to pray more, so I start praying more. And as I begin to pray more, I look around me and think, why isn't everybody praying more? Right? You see that subtle juncture? I become convinced that I need to be more evangelistic, so I pray about it and I start sharing my faith. And suddenly as that starts to roll in my life, I look around me and think, why isn't everybody else sharing their faith? I become convinced that we have to take the gospel to, the, to our neighbors and then to the nations, to the unreached peoples. And suddenly, as I become more missions-oriented in my thinking, in my mind, I start looking around me thinking, what's the matter with everybody else? Why aren't you concerned about missions? You see what's happening? You've got a good thing that suddenly becomes a very bad thing. You start to count in your subtle righteousness as a substitution for your need for Jesus. Here's the way it ought to go for us. Somebody becomes convinced that they ought to pray more and they say to one another, we as a church need to be praying. You know what that ought to do in my heart? I ought to go, amen, we ought to be praying more and I ought to humble myself and kill that hypocrisy and say, God, I preach about praying, but I don't pray as I ought. And I got to repent of the hypocrisy in my prayer life. Somebody comes along and says, we need to do evangelism more. And I see them taking the opportunity to share the gospel. What do I have to do? I have to rejoice in their example and I have to pray to God, God help me. Because I talk about evangelism, but when was the last time I shared the gospel, right? If you talk about global missions, and see, what, what you end up doing, what you end up praying for, so that you don't become the self-righteous, condemning, community of people you you come in week after week and saying my prayer life jesus had to die for my evangelism life jesus had to die for my missional life jesus had to die for but thank god jesus has done it all right that's that's what we're called to do to trust in the righteousness of christ it is easy for us to begin to be self-righteous and the way to keep ourselves from hypocrisy is to pray that God would change me and not everyone else. Listen to Spurgeon, um, my pastor, one of my pastors. He says this. He says, ah, oh, believe me, my hearers, talk is easy, walk is hard. 
Talk is easy, walk is hard. Speech any man can attain to, but act is difficult. We must have grace within to make our life holy, but lip piety needs no grace. The first mark of a hypocrite then is that he contradicts by his acts what he utters by his words. Do any of you do so? If you stand convicted of hypocrisy, bow your heads and confess your sin. I think that's an ongoing practice of the Christian life. Waterbrook, as we make a commitment of what we ought to be, the first way that we stop being self-righteous and condemning and harsh is we acknowledge we need grace every day. Spurgeon adds, Often do I fall on my knees in agony of doubt and cry, Lord, make me sincere. If I be deceived, undeceive me. Isn't that a good prayer? That's the regular prayer of our lives. We need to kill the hypocrite in within. If not, we'll be judgmental, self-righteous. We'll do a whole lot more harm to people than good. Second thing I want you to see here is fear God, not man. Fear God, not man. Look at verse 4. This is Jesus again tenderly speaking, I think, even though he speaks strongly. He says, I tell you my friends. Are you Jesus' friend? If you are, he's talking to you. I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body and after that have nothing more they can do. But I warn you whom to fear. Fear him who, after he is killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. And so you know, what Jesus is doing is these disciples are afraid of the religious hypocrites coming after them, going to crucify Jesus, going to end their ministry. He says, don't be afraid of them. You should tremble and trust God. You should tremble when you look at them because they're going to stand before God for doing what they've done. In fact, Jesus will say later on in Luke chapter 17, he says, it would be better to have a millstone cast up tight around your neck and be cast into the sea than to cause one of these little ones to stumble. Looking at the Pharisees scares the daylights out of him because of the holiness of God. But then he says these words, Yes, I tell you, fear in verse 6, are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? And not one of them is forgotten before God. Why, even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, you are of more value than sparrows. What's Jesus saying here? Jesus is looking at these people and saying, don't fear man trust god look to god lean on god don't don't be standing in self-righteousness because here's the one of the things that will end up causing you to be harsh and cruel i'll tell you why for 20 years in reformed evangelicalism there was this kind of toxic environment that established it was because we get afraid of standing true to what god has called us to do because there's a culture where we identify and get our approval from people on the outside forget it It doesn't matter what other people think. Don't fear men, fear God. Uh, I I have a personal story I remember processing with a friend of mine. He was pastoring a church, and in his church, one of the key families began to fall apart. A husband and wife's marriage began to break, and the wife had had an affair on her husband. And my friend came in to be involved in that situation, And as he got involved in the situation, she repented. She came back to Christ, and her husband was angry about her repentance. 
And so there was a letter written to the elders board and they asked them to publicly correct this woman. And my pastor friend said, there is no way under heaven that we will publicly shame a woman who has repented and come to Christ. And then in a circle of churches that were theologically sound, there were people of influence who were reached out to, and then they wrote and said, you need to deal with this person. And what ended up happening is the elders board, because of the fear of men and because of the approval of the external community, publicly chastised this woman. My uh, friend resigned immediately. This, this sense that somehow... We have to get our approval from those people around us who are theologically appropriate and correct is anathema. My dear friends, we are obligated to God alone. And unless we fear the Lord, we are capable of all kinds of harm. And that's why, you know... Uh, you know, I go on Twitter and I think, man, this toxic thing where, you know, if you if you say a word, if you say the word social justice on social media, you are suddenly woke and you're outside of the faith. Waterbrook, if God calls us to be socially just, who cares what anybody thinks? We stand and model the gospel in Jesus name. And we have to be very careful. I We do not. It does not matter if we are approved of or aligned with or recognized by anyone other than Jesus Christ. That's what we're saying here. Do not fear man, fear God. And here's the good news. He sees you and loves you and cares for you and knows you. It's complicated. We got to work through some things, but we answer to one king and to him alone. And that'll protect us. And finally, in this passage of Scripture, Jesus essentially tells us that we ought to be eager to acknowledge the person and the work of Jesus Christ or the person and the work of the Holy Spirit. Notice what he says at the end here. It's pretty strong language. But I want us to see here that what Jesus is telling his disciples is that when the Holy Spirit begins to work in places you didn't expect him to work, amongst people that you didn't expect him to work among, rejoice. Rejoice. That's what we've got to do. We have to rejoice. Because this is not our kingdom. This church is not God's kingdom. It's part of God's kingdom. But he is doing. And God loves to work where God is pleased to work. And so as Jesus speaks to them, he says, And I tell you, everyone who acknowledges me before men, the Son of Man, will also acknowledge before the angels of God. The one who denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God. So he stops there and says, let's, let's be all about Jesus. Let's be talking about the glory of gospel of Jesus Christ. That's, our, that's who our Savior is. That's who we're singing about. That's who our King is. Let's not worry about what anybody else thinks. If we're ashamed of Jesus and who he saves and where he works and what he's doing, he'll be ashamed of us before the angels who are in heaven. But notice also what he says down here in verse 10. And everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but the one who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. And when the, and so, it, and he's go, so that was like earlier in, uh, the previous section where they said that the work of the Holy Spirit in bringing, casting out demons was done by the spirit of Beelzebul. 
You and I stop and think about that and say, what is the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit? The blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is when you become so entrenched that when the Holy Spirit is doing a work of saving and transformation and you, and, and you ascribe it to someone else, something else, oh, it's just, it's just religious manipulation or it's demonic thing. When you, when you deny a work of God's grace, it ultimately and finally you reject that work of grace you're rejecting the spirit of god and you're claiming that this merciful saving gracious sinner rescuing work is demonic my dear friends there's you are aligning yourself up against the very spirit of god who has come to glorify a god of grace and a savior who's in grace it causes you to tremble right should cause you to tremble. He says, and when you bring, bef- and when they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities, don't be anxious about how you defend yourself or what you should say. For the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. I don't know what your doctrine of the Holy Spirit is, but the Holy Spirit is the determined person of the Trinity to glorify the saving work of Jesus Christ wherever the Father has ordained. Got that? And that should give you hope in sharing the gospel. You don't know how to speak. You don't know what you're going to say. You don't know how you're going to handle what's going on. The Holy Spirit is the one who will come and empower you. You don't work against the Holy Spirit. Go with the flow of the Holy Spirit. And I believe for Waterbrook, one of the applications of this is that we ought to be praying to see the Holy Spirit work in every church around us, in every place around us. And, uh, you know, one of the, the reasons, Marianne and I were talking about this yesterday, when we go to the C.S. Lewis Foundation, one of the things um, that happens there for us is it's a really broad group of people who love Jesus and are, you know, from the arts community, they're from uni- they're university professors, there's writers, there's scientists, there's political leaders. It's a, it's a big, uh, expansive group of people. And there's sometimes when I'm sitting there thinking, ah, oh, this isn't the group I normally find myself in. And I'm not sure I align a lot with some of these things that are going on. But both of us said, you know, the beauty of this is we're humbled to realize that God loves to work in places without our permission. And glorify his son through people that might surprise you. Aren't you glad for that? I mean, that's the only reason Waterbrook exists. Is that God in his sovereignty has chosen a people to glorify his son to the praise and glory of his grace. And so Waterbrook, this is what we need to do. We need to come back and say, God, help me with my hypocrisy. And Heavenly Father, help me to align myself with your gracious work, not not fearing man, but just saying I want to revere the Father as he as he cares for and advances the kingdom. And, and to believe that what God will do, take a little church like Waterbrook, take any church it pleases him, and to bring broken and wounded and weary people to himself. That's what he loves to do. And Waterbrook will rejoice to see Jesus exalted and to see broken and wounded, sinful and, and violated people made whole in Jesus Christ. That's what we're doing. So when we come in a second to make our, our church covenant together, would you do it in that kind of culture? 
that Waterbrook would be a refuge for broken, uh, traumatized people. Traumatized by the world, traumatized by the church. But they would find that there is a Savior who delights, forgives, and restores. That's our story. That's our Savior. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, as we come to take communion, as we come to declare a church covenant together, I pray that you would make us the kind of people who repent of hypocrisy regularly. Heavenly Father, we want to present ourselves as better than what we really are, but we need Jesus. We want, Heavenly Father, to fear you rather than men. It doesn't matter what anybody else thinks or says. Help us to be faithful to the Savior who laid down his life for sinners. And help us to rejoice, Heavenly Father, and to proclaim and honor Jesus in the power of the Holy Spirit, that the Holy Spirit, when he begins to work, we are responsive. And I pray, surprise us how you work, where you work. I mean, you've already surprised both of us by, most of us by saving us. So sovereign Lord, save, I pray, to the glory and praise of your name. And we'll rejoice through Jesus Christ. And God's people said, amen. Thank you for joining us today. We hope you were able to seek, savor, and share the all-surpassing worth of Jesus Christ. If you'd like to find out more about our church, submit a prayer request, watch previous sermons, go to www.waterbrook.church. Have a blessed week.